Hello everyone, I'm Jo. And I'm Melissa. And this is a podcast where we chat to people who practice Nichiren Buddhism within the SGI. We're not official spokespeople. These are just informal chats about what Buddhism is and why chanting Nam-myoho-renge-kyo works. Welcome to Buddhist Chats. In this episode, we chat with Kelvin Omard, who's been practicing Nichiren Buddhism since the 80s. He tells us how he's transformed his anxiety and found unshakable confidence. Hi, Kelvin. Hello. 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 Good evening. Hi, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you both? Good, thanks. Yeah, we're good. Well, welcome to Buddhist Chats. We're yeah, super excited to chat to you today. Full disclosure, I actually know Kelvin. Yeah, we've been practising alongside each other sort of on and off for a while now haven't we yes we have it seems well good four no more than five years yeah as long as you've been a buddha yeah so i have wanted to ask you i I don't actually know how you you originally met the practice and i suppose that's that that would be the thrust of our of our conversation today about how what what, when you met the practice and and why you continue chanting and you know what's been the journey really well i met the practice over 37 years ago which is a big surprise for me that i've actually been able to keep at something for that long um and i was introduced by uh, an amazing girlfriend of mine an actress friend it was when i was acting and she sent me a christmas card with this very funny quote in it, Nam Myoho Renge Kyo. I think it was in 1983. And I rang her up and said, what's that you've written in this Christmas card? And she said, oh, I've become a Buddhist. And if you chant that, you can become happy. I really didn't take much notice of it at that time. However, as situations would go, I ended up in the Caribbean making a film, a very big job for me, and um, it was on that film that I actually met the practice properly. And there is this, you know, the saying goes that once you hear or you're introduced to Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, then a sequence of events will take place to keep on giving you opportunities to meet the practice until you actually start chanting. And that's what happened to me. So, so what happened? So, what happened in the Caribbean that that meant that? Um, yeah, who who introduced you again? Well, I was um, I was working for some reason. I took this Christmas card with me to the Caribbean because the you know the friend of mine who introduced me to the practice. I was very close to her, and I really sort of trusted her. Something her instincts about things. So, I took this Christmas card with me. I think we were probably by now. It's sort of like. April, May, April, 1984, so a few months later. And I was in my hotel room one evening and I could hear this sound coming from somewhere within the hotel, either next door to me or from below me. It was like a mumbling sound and it was a really strange sound, something I'd never heard before, but it really, really sort of pricked my curiosity. When I came out of my room, I knew that the whole hotel had been commissioned by the film crew. So I had no problem with listening at each door, which I did. 
So I walked along my corridor, listening at each door to see if the sound I could hear was coming from within that room, and it wasn't. So I went downstairs to the next floor and listened at every door. And sure enough, I came to the door where the sound was loudest and very, very sort of like boldly knocked on the door. And it was opened by two members of the film crew, one actor and a stuntman who were both just about to do gongyo. And I said to them, oh, I know what you're doing. You're chanting that Nam Horenge Kyo, aren't you? And they said, yes, do you want to come in and join? So I literally went in and joined uh, these two, mem- uh, two film crew, and I just started chanting then. Wow, that's... <laughs> and I could do Gongyo, almost sight-read it as an actor would sight-read, you know, um, complicated text. So I sight-read Gongyo and did some chanting of Nami Horenge Kyo with them. And that was my first proper encounter with the practice. That's amazing. I, ca- I love the way you were just sneaking around the corridors listening at doors. You were really <laughs> intrigued. I mean... <laughs> well, I, I'd really, I had been searching for something. Yeah. Literally. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm curious about why. Why were you searching? Well, prior to meeting the practice, I was working abro- um, in North Wales on a on a job and it was on this job that I really started to recognize how anxious I was about life. Uh, I'd always struggled with anxiety but I never really realized how bad it was until that particular year and I just felt you know that I couldn't I didn't want to live my life feeling like that and it was beginning to make me feel very unhappy and very depressed. Um, I'd suffered with anxiety since I was a child, but it was not until I was in sort of my early 20s that it really started to dominate my life and make my life kind of slightly unbearable. So I started to search. I mean, the only thing I could think of, well, I probably need some kind of spiritual foundation or f- spiritual nourishment to quell this you know, shaking, quaking feeling that I had inside. And so I started searching. I started looking at different religious practices. I looked at um, the Hare Krishna movement. I read books about Judaism. I even, you know, started returning to the Bible, which was my original religion as a child. But nothing seemed to make any sense or really touch the sides. Um, and it wasn't until I started chanting Nami Horenge Kyo that something about the sound and the vibration of Nami Horenge Kyo started to make me feel as though there was some hope. The anxiety didn't go away, but it gave me hope that the possibility of chanting Nami Horenge Kyo, because that's what I was told, if I chant Nami Horenge Kyo, then I would be able to transform anything or everything. So the reason why I actually started to chant was to overcome anxiety. And my anxiety was very closely connected to almost like an existential realization that I'm alive. So it was very much connected to life and death. So my waking hours were always 
sort of filled with this almost like a foreboding about life, which was very much rooted in death. I don't know if that makes sense to yeah, you. Yeah, it, it makes total sense. I mean, they're, they're two sides of the same coin, aren't they? And I think the moment you realise that in childhood, you either manage to push it away most of the time or you think about almost... No, it's just there, isn't it? I remember from quite young, from when I was about four, having terrible existential dread. Um, but yeah, does did, did it work? I presume so, because you've been doing it for all this time. So, um, well, but how quick was that sort yeah, of... Yeah, well, well, it kind of, I mean, it's... Instantaneous? Or, yeah, what... No, not at all. I mean... What was your journey? Yeah. I mean, I suppose from from that first encounter with Nami Horenge Cure, I mean, why I actually started chanting, I started chanting because I felt like, you know, I started going to meetings when I returned to the UK and listened to, you know, the explanation of Nami Horenge Cure and why it worked. And I was invited along to a ceremony where this girlfriend of mine was going to receive her Buddhist uh, scroll, which is called a Gohonzon, and she was going to become a member of this Buddhist organization. So I went along as her guest. And I remember going along to Kensington Town Hall, where the ceremony was taking place, or slightly late, and just walked into the town hall to a wall of sound with about 1,300 500 people all chanting and as soon as that wall of sound hit me I just burst into tears and I knew instantly without understanding anything kind of theoretically about Nami Horenge Kyo I said if something as powerful as that can make me feel like that then I've got to look into this so that was my 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 reason for chanting was just that very very powerful emotional wall of sound of the sound of a thousand buddhas chanting and that's when that's when my search and my quest really started i started going to meetings and inquiring and i started to believe that i could chant to change everything about my life then i was uh, you know a jobbing actor so, of course, I applied Nami Horenge Cure to getting work as an actor, which, for the most part, actually didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> which is quite interesting. And I thought to myself, well, you know, they said if I, I could chant for anything, I could chant to become, um, you know, a famous, successful actor, but nothing further from the <laughs> truth, because what actually happened, my career just really just spiralled down into the nether region. It literally just disappeared. I understand now why that happened, because that's not really what I wanted. What I wanted was to overcome this deep unhappiness, which was actually eclipsing the fact whether I was a, a successful actor or not. It was going to eclipse my, my, my success in life. So the inconspicuous benefit that I needed to really go for was to really tap into this suffering and to transform that. Would you just, um, sorry to interrupt, but that would you just mind spelling out what the difference is between conspicuous benefit and inconspicuous benefits? Right. Uh, Conspicuous benefit are those things which you can actually see to change. So there, for instance, you know, chanting to get a job and you get a job. 
chanting for, you know, the right partner, and that partner appears. Right, uh, chanting for money to pay your bills. Those are conspicuous benefits. Inconspicuous benefits are those things that you can't necessarily see, and they're usually deeply rooted in your psychological and your emotional consciousness. So, for instance, my inconspicuous benefit I want to trans transform was this anxiety, which was making me feel de depressed. Thank you. Yeah, I, I totally relate. Um, you know, I had certain struggles that kept repeating themselves within the first sort of eight years of my practice. And I remember saying to somebody, because it took me quite a long time to get involved with the organisation, and they went, they was like, we never see you around. How come you never, you know, you're not... We don't see you in meetings and da da da. And I was like, oh, you know, since I started chanting and since I became a Buddhist, everything's just been really difficult. <laughs> and he went, good. And I was like, what? And now I, now I get it. But at the time, I just thought, well, that's quite masochistic. But, but now I get it. And the same as you, that that the things that I chanted, the things that I thought I wanted, and we mentioned this in another in another episode, were were actually not what I wanted. And so I chanted for something very, very convinced that that was what I needed for my happiness. And through that not happening and realising that what the reason that I wanted that thing was to address a much deeper need. And that was the thing I needed to transform, the deeper need. Yes. And just the, the desire for the, for the thing was just a symptom of my delusion. Mm. Um, and so this practice it, it sort of forces you to go to go deeper exactly and i think for me had i achieved great material uh, benefit in those first few months i don't know whether i would have been able to continue because so much of my happiness which i thought was kind of rooted in circumstances and it, it took a lot of understanding to really grasp what this practice was about. It wasn't just about, you know, the acquisition of things. It was really about understanding your life and life and not having the things I wanted immediately at my grasp really made me drive even harder in terms of my chanting and studying Buddhist theory and, you know, really applying myself to my Buddhist practice. Because I think I was a bit flaky. My roots were not deeply in the ground. <laughs> and I think, you know, the struggle of wanting to maintain a strong practice was to not have everything that I wanted in the first few months, the first few years. So to really put down strong roots of my Buddhist understanding. I think um, I was in a study meeting with somebody recently and they said the idea that it's, we shouldn't really be chanting for the stuff. We should be chanting for how we feel about the stuff. So to sort of transform, it's not the fact that you might want a new partner or a job. You know, I was looking for a job and then I found a job. And, you know, that kind of keeps, sorry for quoting Smiths at you. Um, it's it's more that you're chanting about what... <laughs> Please do, uh, Yeah, I might, that might happen again. Um, but actually that brings me on to a... A point that I wanted to ask you I'm fascinated by this about the, the practice in the 80s because because they were around people that were practicing the 80s that were sort of 
they were chanting for stuff they were chanting for a new car or whatever and that it's famously been lampooned in absolutely fabulous that you know that's based on there's a character that is based on somebody who was chanting in the 80s who is you know fairly acquisitive and up for the conspicuous benefit end of things and yeah i just this is a this isn't really a question this is a, a this is a ramble um but what was it like in the in the eighties? Because I've start I only started chanting ten years ago. Was there a lot of that kind of mm. vibe? You know, like I, you know, there were a, f- a few sort of high profile people that were. It kind of became associated with this kind of magical thinking idea that you could, you know, chant for stuff. Yeah, it, it, but it was it was like that in the eighties, and I know everything about that story and that person because I was <laughs> actually very closely connected to that whole scene. Um, I remember doing um, an interview for the Time Out, and I think the the strapline was designer Buddhism. Um, and it was very much related to the whole world of PR and chanting for Porsches and all of that stuff, slightly negative. And it did, and it had, you know, Buddhism in the 80s had this idea because so many of us who were coming to the practice in the 80s were in some shape, form or fashion in the media. They brought with it the whole kind of idea of what we wanted out of life, i.e. the material. And so some of it, yeah, was quite negative. Um But for people like myself, it was much deeper than that. It was, you know, as I said, it was about becoming happy. So, yeah, it was was very dynamic in the 80s. I remember, you know, coming to meetings and going to meetings. And the meetings were, you know, sometimes were full of people who were either well-known or well-connected, pop stars to to actors, to, to dancers, to writers. It was very much like that in the 80s. But in a way, the 80s were like that, weren't they? Yes. You know, there was that sort of feeling. Do you remember loads of money? <laughs> and it's actually, well, certainly my experience of chanting for stuff has, because I started not even knowing that this was, was Nam Yorangika was anything to do with Buddhism. It was purely um, grasping. <laughs> my my intention was purely selfish and grasping that um, I wanted something someone who wasn't even a buddhist told me about Gikyo. she didn't really know what it meant she'd just heard it was a thing like a manifesting tool and so through me chanting for stuff and then realizing that something much deeper was transforming i sort of I, I think I would have been absolutely one of those people in the 80s chanting for a better car yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I think I think what was really important to remember that in the eighties, the reason why there was this idea that you could chant for anything was it was used very, very specifically to get people to chant anyway. So the carrot that was dangled in front of most of us was the very thing that we were most after at that time. And of course, in the eighties, we were all after successful careers. You know, the wise Buddhas knew that going for the stick, which may be that new job in that new West End show, may be the thing that you were going for. But what was going to be happening at a subconscious, much deeper level was your connection to Namihorenge Kyo and to the idea of cause and effect was actually going at a much deeper level. 
So, you know, so it was important for us to actually have things to go for, to chant about. And I still, to this day, uh, when I'm encouraging somebody to chant who's never chanted before, I always say to them, you know, there's no point in chanting with blind faith. Chant for something that you want specifically. And then when you can see the specifics, then that will then give you the impetus to want to chant more. Well, it's a it's a key quote, isn't it, from Nietzsche and the actual proof. And that, I'm not going to remember the actual quote, but um, that essentially there's, what are they? There's documentary proof, there's theoretical proof, and then there's actual proof, which is and, the one. Yeah. Actual proof. Yeah. Absolutely right. Yes. And what what are documentary proof theoretical? And I don't proof? know. We'll come back to that. Do, do you know, well, Kelvin? Doc, doc, yeah. Yeah. Well, I do actually. Yes. Documentary proof are the kind of historical uh, writings of Nichiren Daishonin, who founded this teaching based on the law of Namihorengekyo. He wrote letters of encouragement to his disciples in 13th century Japan. And these letters or documents we call the Gosho. And they were letters that he wrote of letters of encouragement to his disciples. And that's the documentary proof of this Buddhism. So it's, you know, you, the letters that he wrote about when he first chanted Namiho Renge-kyo and shared Namiho Renge-kyo with the then shogunate in Japan. There were letters where he encouraged uh, disciples who had husbands who were ill. There were letters where he encouraged young samurais who were full of anger and he was encouraged them to have a stable mind and not to be angry with their lord. Then theoretical proof are those um, ideas contained within his letters that perhaps start to really go a bit deeper. So, for instance, one of the theories he writes about is very simple theory is that everybody possesses Buddhahood. So when Nitrin Daishonin was sharing Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, he shared it with the knowledge the confident knowledge that everybody possesses this quality within that is Buddhahood. That's a theory. And then the actual proof, okay, well, if that's true, if we all possess Buddhahood, then let me actualize Buddhahood in my life. And that's actual proof through chanting for something I want to achieve or overcome. So the three proofs are very important in Nichiren Daishonin's Buddhism. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask two two huge questions. So, what what is Buddhahood? I mean, what what do we mean by? It? I mean, I know what I think I mean by it, but like to a layper, if you were just explaining this to somebody in the pub, what 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 does that actually mean? And I know that's a huge question. And the other question is, what actual proof? You know, you mentioned that it, it wrecked your career. But um, what is your, what's your actual proof? <laughs> Run us through some of the good stuff that happened. Presumably, some good stuff happened. <laughs> Otherwise, what are you doing? <laughs> oh, that's really funny. Um, <laughs> well, Buddhahood is a state of understanding. I won't say it's a state of being alone. It's a state of being and a state of understanding of one's unlimited potential that is characterized 
by immense courage, immense compassion, and immense wisdom. So that's really what Buddhahood is. It's being able to draw out of your life this compassion which is far-reaching beyond yourself, that reaches out into the hearts and lives of other people, where you actually really do care about your environment, the people in your environment, where you live, where you work. It's immense courage, courage to stand up alone amidst the vicissitudes of life and take 100% responsibility without blaming. And, and unlimited wisdom, wisdom which you probably didn't even realize you had. So Buddhahood is characterized by courage, compassion, and wisdom. And your second question about this Buddhism wrecking my career and why I wanted <laughs> So I yeah, it. what's, what's well, gone right? <laughs> uh, I am laughing, I know you can't see me, but I'm really laughing and enjoying it. So what has so much, well, from those early days when I started chanting, after my friend received her her Gohonzon or her Buddhist scroll, I then, a few months later, decided that I wanted to become a member. So in November 1984, I became a member and I received my Buddhist scroll. And it, for me, I didn't really achieve it. It was, it, for me, initially, it was just a state of being. I could wake up in the morning, get out of bed, feeling incredibly anxious. I could get in front of my gohonzon to do my morning practice of chanting gongyo. And I used to chant a lot, sometimes an hour or two hours. And that hour or two hours would make me feel good. It would make me feel the anxiety wasn't gone, but it made me uh, able to get through my day. I think the turning point came really was a couple of years later when I introduced my first, you know, I introduced one of my friends to Namu Horenge Kyo. And this was to change my life. It was the first time I'd actually had the confidence to share Namu Horenge Kyo with another person. And I shared it with this friend of mine and it opened up a whole avenue and world of experiences which just completely and to this day have blown my mind. And without going into too much detail, it was like all the desires I ever had in my heart about living a life of freedom, of material freedom in a way, was visited upon me. Um, suffice to say, my anxiety went through the roof because I didn't have anything, it felt like I didn't have anything else to worry about. Somebody who was who I thought was a close, you know, my cousin roof or my world peace partner. I materially had everything that I felt like I wanted, but actually my anxiety was off the Richter scale. I was traveling around the world. I was meeting interesting people. Um, but still this unhappiness, this deep, deep pain about being alive just wouldn't go away. And it took me many years of practicing of chanting to overcome that and having lots of, how can I say, superficial benefits 
you know, which I could see on a daily basis, but I never actually was able to erase this feeling of unhappiness. Um, and it took me quite, uh, quite a few years. It wasn't until almost 20 years into my practice, actually, that I was able to really knock the anxiety on the head and knock it out the ballpark, as it were. And did you use therapeutic kind of methods to, to, you know, to do what you needed to do? Yes, I did. Um, Buddhism was really, you know, Buddhism is about wisdom. And the wisdom that was coming out of my practice at the time was, you know, I would needed to go and get some therapy. Um, and I had quite a few bouts of therapy, uh, CBT and DBT and things like that. But it was actually my practice that really helped me to understand where the kind of root of this anxiety or this suffering was. And in chanting about it, I could see that there was an early experience, a very early childhood experience of trauma where I experienced quite a lot of violence in my life as a child that was meted out toward me. And it caused me to suffer from a form of post-traumatic stress. And it was this post-traumatic stress that was actually at the root of this anxiety and making my waking and living moments quite anxious making. So it was many, many years later that I don't know if you know anything about psychological therapies, but in order sometimes to overcome psychological uh, trauma or, you know, trauma, you have to revisit the situation in a safe environment, i.e. in a therapeutic chair or with a therapist. And many, many years later, I had the experience of revisiting my childhood trauma, but through my practice. Yeah, that was going to be my question, actually. Yeah. Sorry? That was actually something that I was thinking while you were talking. I was just like, so why would chanting provide an extra level of healing, really? Well, a friend of mine, a very close friend of mine, Buddhist friend of mine, he passed away. And um, I remember before he died chanting with him and visiting him and having conversations with him about the eternity of life and he was like a buddhist grandfather really he was much older than me and he was very wise and i'd love to go and sit and talk and chant with him and he became ill and he um was essentially dying and the things that i did around the time of when he was before his death i completely pulled away from him and i felt like i couldn't be around him because I could sense subconsciously that I didn't want to accept the reality that he would one day pass and leave me here. Anyway, in his wisdom, this member invited me around to his house to help him to prepare what I thought his flat, you know, to help him, you know, with some domestic chores or something, to help him actually prepare for his death. I was a very active young men's leader, doing lots of activities and organising. So I was quite responsible. But this was not a responsibility that I ever thought would be asked of me. But anyway, I took it with a 100% commitment. And I devoted myself to supporting this member in the last stages of his life, helping him with logistics to do with his flat and his estate and just supporting him in any way I can. Anyway, he eventually died. 
you know, he died really peacefully, happy to say. And I felt really confident that we had done with all the members as well, all we could have possibly done to make his passing as peaceful as possible. Two days after he died, I had what I could only call was a nervous breakdown. It was like all the sides of my world just dismantled. And I felt like my mind wasn't anchored to anything. It was quite frightening. I did chant, and the more I chanted about it, I kind of knew that there was something connected to this kind of present day anxiety that I was feeling. And of course, as I said earlier, memories of my childhood came flooding to the surface to do with uh, you know, physical abuse and that trauma in my childhood. And I spent about two to three weeks in this maelstrom of fundamental suffering, reliving this experience, but this time with the through line of Nam Myoho Renge Cure and this little voice getting louder and louder in my mind saying, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. It's all right. Life is eternal. You are Buddha. And that was my mantra. That was my mantra. You're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Life is eternal. You are a Buddha. And very, very gradually, without, it was a sudden thing. It happened really, really subtly. I came out of the experience without any anxiety. Was was this all, everything that came up, was it sort of the first, it was the first time you'd really experienced the, the full you know, the, the, total, the totality of what you'd been through as a small child, do you think you'd sort of managed to access it because you just lost somebody who was dear to you? Yes, it was, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the friend's, you know, death was the trigger almost, but also it was this relationship that we had where it was based on this, you know, discussion around the eternity of life and death and... And of course, I didn't connect the two initially to my, you know, to my own childhood experience. But I, you know, I came to learn very, very clearly that my anxieties in life were very much connected to my death. And I needed something to take me to a place where the greatest fear almost could be confronted and overcome. Um, so... What struck me was that you touched on something that, that I've often thought about this practice, which is that it enables that, it bridges that gap between understanding something and realise and actually being able to transform it. Because for a long time, I did plenty of therapy um, over the years and I may have fully understood exactly, you know, I understood all the causes as to why I was anxious and why I may have suffered episodes of depression but that didn't actually help me feel any different. Understanding doesn't necessarily actually help you stop feeling anxious. Anxiety feels so sort of physical, doesn't it? It's so visceral. And it often felt like there was a massive disconnect between the anxiety and actually anything that was going on. It just kind of felt free floating. And that's why I really, when I, I was really looking for something, but this practice alone seemed to give me something that as you said you know if you chant for enough time in the morning 
you can transform waking up feeling quite anxious into not just coping with the day, but really having a wonderful day sometimes. And um, it's, it's the difference between learning and realisation, between sort of understanding a thing and actually profoundly feeling different and having that confidence, as you said, just that, that sense that you are going to be fine because there's a much, much bigger picture. You know, you're um, a microcosm of the microcosm. You're, you're, a, you're a wonderful expression of the universe's energy and it just sort of, there's something so grounding and, and hope-giving about that. Absolutely. I mean, you. I mean, I think you've hit the nail on the head, Melissa. I mean, in Buddhism, there's a concept called turning poison into medicine. So it's not just about the realization of what else, you know, what is at the seat of our suffering, but it's to transform that suffering into elixir. And in Buddhism, that elixir is the qualities of the Buddha: courage, compassion, and wisdom. These are the things that are inconspicuous but we so need to guide us through our lives. And that's what the reward was for me out of this experience, was the qualities of the Buddha. So out of this depth of suffering, once I'd got to the other side, so it wasn't a nervous breakdown, I call it my nervous breakthrough, or my spiritual breakthrough, because on the other side was courage, compassion, and wisdom, which I could then apply to my daily life. And also I could share, like I'm sharing with you, this experience with other people, which gave them, and hopefully has given them, the confidence to challenge and tackle their own suffering. It sounds like um, your journey, I mean, I think lots of people's journeys, starts out with them wanting sort of treasures of the storehouse kind of money, fame, success, great career, all that kind of stuff. But through the amount of Daimoku you've done and the the study and the supporting people, that the treasures of the heart, I mean, Nichiren says that those are the things that are important and that you, you take with you onto the next bit. And those are the things that mean that, you know, no matter what's happening outside of you, you can still... I was going to say, have a lovely time. That sounds really anodyne. But do you know what I mean? It's just like no matter how shit things are, you can still crack a joke or, or I don't know, that you can still see the value in it, I suppose. That's that's exactly what I mean. That it, it's, you're, not, you're not only appreciating your life when it's brilliant. Yes. You can actually appreciate it in all its manifestations. Um. And yeah, and ever since that experience, so that was a good few years ago, I have been building on the awareness of myself of being someone who's a lot more confident, who's a lot more wise, who's a lot more courageous. So it was almost like another chapter on my life, which I have been building on. And it doesn't mean that there has been an absence of anxiety or an absence of anything. I've had visitations again of little smidgens of anxiety but this time rather than you know wanting to you know do duvet dive for weeks and weeks or start to research i recognize it and then i can use my practice as i would to overcome it much much more quickly than i would before so rather than saying oh my god you know this is overwhelming i don't know what to do i know exactly what to do you know, I can either get some therapy or I can get down in front of the gohons. Depending, you know, the wisdom will tell you what tells me what it is I need at that particular time. 
And I just like to, to, you know, to end this little bit about life and death with a little experience about why I felt this was such an important experience for me to get to a place where I was confident about my life and death as a Buddha and really believing in the eternity of life. And it was when my father was dying. My father passed away about five years ago. And we had quite a tempestuous relationship most of my life. And however, before the last stages of his life, I was fortunate enough to spend quite a lot of time with him, getting to know him, caring for him. And the day before he died, we had to take him into hospital because he became very poorly. And, you know, all the family had gathered and we were spending time just being in the same room with him, watching him, his life, you know, kind of slowly ebbing away, but just really enjoying these final moments with him. And the evening before he passed away, I had decided to stay in the hospital with my brother and my nephew. And the other family members had left. My father was quite calm. And I remember a Buddhist friend of mine saying to me, have you ever spoken to your father about the eternity of life? And this came back to me in that moment. So I went to my father's bedside and said, Dad, in Buddhism, we have this concept about the eternity of life. And started to tell my father in my, you know, as best as I could, what I believe the eternity of life was. And I kind of said, you know, life is like a, a wave on the on the water, you know, a droplet of water. Take, you know, all these different ways trying to explain it. But my father became so peaceful and not so agitated and quite a, quite a, calm so I got my older brother to start talking to him too about Buddhism my older brother's a Buddhist and my father was just I could see that he was getting a lot of comfort from it anyway I went up to his bedside after my brother had finished speaking to him and my father simply I could see that he was fumbling with the blankets and he was trying to get his hands from underneath the blanket because his hands were trapped as it was making him feel uncomfortable. He thrust his hand up out of the blanket to take my hand. And he turned his head. He looked straight into my eyes and passed away. And I held his gaze and all the way through this experience, I thought, I can't, I, you know, I, how can I keep this gaze? I can't show my father that I'm afraid, that I can't show him I'm afraid. And I just held his gaze until he just peacefully passed away. And then my brother and I, we started chanting and I knew in that moment everything that I'd experienced, my anxiety, my fear of death, my chanting with this member to understand the eternity of life, all crystallized in that moment with giving me the confidence and the absolute unequivocal belief that, that life is eternal, to share that with my father in that moment. Beautiful. Calvin, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. This, the, 
That's, that's okay. It's a good thing. I normally cry when I give that experience. <laughs> well, I think Joe's. I think Joe's crying. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> it, it's an that that did be yeah. Can you talk, Melissa? <laughs> I'm going to mute myself. So happy for you and your dad. Yeah, I I can. I um. Yeah, I think that you've you've set the waterworks off for Joe there. I just wanted to say to you that yeah, I. It's a weird thing to say, isn't it? But I think it's just one of the most wonderful things in in that I've ever experienced. I was with my dad when he died as well, and um, and it's the and actually I was uh, it, that was a long time ago. I was eighteen. Um, and I didn't have this practice then, but I'll never forget the feeling of, of just profound knowledge that it's absolutely fine. I think I, you know, that, that he was, that there's nothing scary about dying. And, and of course there, you know, that's a ridiculous thing to say. It is scary. It's the thing that we're all scared of. It's a major reason why any of us seek a spiritual practice. And it's certainly, I'm not saying I'm not scared of it, but that moment of release and that and just being with somebody when they pass from existence to non-existence is such a profound privilege it's just such an amazing thing to experience it is it just kind of felt like he's he's going back he's going back to where we all came from it's just home it's another it's the other side of the coin right that's this is the deal we all we all go round and round but yeah, just that, that what we have is this, this wonderful sense of hope about the fact that, you know, we get to be reborn again. Exactly. And I'm not saying that everybody's experience who, you know, if you're a Buddhist is about, you know, understanding the eternity of life is going to be the same as mine, but it is important mm -hmm. that we do chant. I was always encouraged to chant about the eternity of life. Um, to to understand the Buddhist concept of time, not the linear concept of time as we know it, that begins and ends. It's the time without beginning time. Because when we have a universal perspective on our life that is infinitely um, uh, powerful, you know, like the universe, then we harness that same quality from within so it's really about not limiting our lives it's really about seeing our lives as vast as the universe and seeing our life and death not in a linear way but in an eternal sense and that's quite liberating yeah it's totally liberating i think i i, I it's happened in a stealth way i i don't think i have chanted about uh life and death specifically and I, and actually maybe I will now but um but I know that I started chanting terrified of dying and now I, I just appear not to be but um that that you know that's happened certainly over uh, around quite a few different things over 10 years where something mm. that that seemed is immutable yes is that yes. does that that mean sort of not that it can't yes. move doesn't it okay so mm -hmm. that something that seemed immutable in my life without yeah. me even even tr thinking that's something i need to transform 10 years later i'm just like oh that that thing that i thought was an integral part of who i was that's just gone now 
Um, and um, and certainly, yeah, the way that I think about life and death is one of those things. Well, that's it. I mean, it is. It is. You know, the 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 Buddhist taught that all suffering comes from the four sufferings of birth, old age, sickness, and death. So we can actually trace all of our mundane sufferings to one of those four sufferings. And actually, the suffering of death, whether we are afraid of death or not, it's when Buddhism talks about suffering of death, it's not literally the fear of death, it's actually almost an inability to truly understand the concept of death. So even nihilism, or people who are atheists, they have a concept of death, which they may not think it's causes them suffering, but it's actually rooted in a form of suffering that does not generate hope. So that's why in Buddhism we are encouraged to chant about life and death from an eternal perspective, so that we can truly understand it, because it is one of the four suffering. There's nothing else, really. In fact, you know, all suffering, if we, as I say, if we trace it down, it will be find its roots in the four sufferings of birth, old age, sickness and death and that's why we practice this practice so that we can have the wisdom to understand those full sufferings from an enlightened state mm. thank you so much thank you so much thank you so much calvin that's wonderful Thanks for listening, and thanks to Kerry Sheldrick for helping us get started, Tash Wilcox for doing our artwork, Barclay Bandon and Grim Grim for the music, and of course, Kelvin O'Mard for taking the time to chat with us.